Hello lovelies, my name is Caitlin and welcome to another episode of True Crime with Caitlin. Today we're going to be talking about a case of parricide, where a young boy from a privileged background would go on to slaughter both of his parents. This is the murder of Nicholas and Elizabeth Newell. In the early 1960s, Nicholas and Elizabeth met at New Park School in St Andrews, Fife, where they both worked as teachers and immediately they had a spark. It was pretty much love at first sight. Elizabeth was in her early 20s and Nicholas was in his early 30s. He was nine years older than her, but this age difference didn't bother the couple. They were compatible, they had a lot in common, and most importantly, they were in love. In love is probably an understatement, they were besotted with each other. Nicholas came from a wealthy family who had a lot of old money. They had worked in shipbuilding and I think Nicholas was the first to not go down that route and got into teaching instead. Because of the family wealth, he was able to attend the best boarding schools getting a brilliant education and he would go on to attend St Andrews University where the Prince of Wales and the Princess of Wales would both later attend. Really quick side note in here as well, but on their website, St Andrews University said that one of their other alumni was Benjamin Franklin, who was one of the founding fathers of America and the man on the $100 note. He got an honorary degree from there in 1759. I know that's not really relevant to this case, but I found that interesting, so I thought you might as well. Because of the social class he was born into, Nicholas was described as being very entitled. He thought very high of himself and very low of other people. He genuinely thought that because he had money, he was better than people who had less than him. It was said that he was snobby and stuck up. If he was out and about in like a restaurant, he could be rude to the waiter or the waitress and think nothing of it. And anyone that he considered below him had to address him as Mr. Newell or he wouldn't be happy. I'm also not saying that everyone born in a higher class like this is like that, but that is how some people would describe Nicholas. Elizabeth's early life pretty much mirrored Nicholas's. She came from a family of farmers who over time had built up a fortune and after the death of her parents, she inherited a good sum of money. She had also been sent to a boarding school and attended St Andrews University, obviously a bit later than Nicholas had. Elizabeth was a social butterfly. She was described as jolly and a person who liked to have a good time. She enjoyed sports, she would play tennis, cricket, golf, and she was very competitive, maybe even a bit unhealthily competitive. She always wanted to be on the winning team or the best player and apparently would take a bad when she wasn't. Despite her happy and jolly front, Elizabeth could have a fiery temper. 
Nicholas and Elizabeth married in 1963 and together they enjoyed a life of luxury. One thing about these two is you know that saying, live every day like it's your last. These two did. They were here for a good time and they always lived in the moment. The couple wanted to get the most out of their life and enjoy it so they would spend and spend and didn't really consider watching their spending or anything like that. They lived for the now. They loved sailing, so they bought a yacht and they would go everywhere on it. They loved going to Spain and so they bought a villa there. They would frequently host and attend parties. They spent a lot of time with friends, either going to dinner or drinking, and they spent all of their time together. They came as a package. If you invited Elizabeth somewhere, Nicholas was going to show up too. This wasn't even them being obsessive or possessive with each other either. They were truly in love. They truly loved being together, experiencing life together. And I think that's beautiful really. For a lot of people, that's what they want. They want to find their soulmate and do everything with them and just be happy and stupidly in love. And for Nicholas and Elizabeth, they were very lucky. They had that with each other. In 1965, Elizabeth gave birth to her first baby, a son who she named Roderick, and in 1966, her second son and final child, Mark, was born. I say Elizabeth gave birth to her children very deliberately because Nicholas did not want children. Initially, when Elizabeth proposed the idea of starting a family to Nicholas, he was like, no, he didn't want kids, he was dead against it. But finally, after some persuasion, he reluctantly agreed, but he made it very clear that she's the one who wanted children, so they were hers, if you get what I'm saying. The Newells had planned to go on a really big, long, extravagant holiday in 1967. They planned to sail on their yacht all around the West Indies before docking in the Caribbean and soaking up the sun and experiencing the culture. But after leaving Scotland, Mark, the younger son, came over really, really ill. He was being sick and having blackouts, so the Newells had to intercept their journey to the West Indies to get Mark in front of a doctor. And this is how they ended up in Jersey, one of the Channel Islands. It didn't take long for Nicholas and Elizabeth to completely fall in love with Jersey and I don't blame them. It looks absolutely gorgeous with its clear blue sea and golden sandy beaches. They decided this is where they want to live, where they want to raise their sons surrounded by the sandy beaches and the stunning views. The couple purchased an extravagant mansion called Crow's Nest in St. Owen, which was perched on top of a hill, giving them an amazing view of the small beach Greve de Lec. By 1968, the Newells had comfortably settled in their new home. Nicholas continued his teaching career at nearby St. Michael's Prep School. He taught English and history, and despite being described as a bit authoritative and stern, he was all round well-liked by his pupils. Elizabeth was more of a casual worker. She was a supply teacher, so really just worked now and then, and the boys absolutely loved their new home. Here in Jersey, everyone seemed happy. Honestly, their life appeared to be sheer bliss. However, despite how things looked on the outside, things inside the home were quite different. 
As I mentioned earlier, Elizabeth could have a fiery temper and Nicholas was sort of an absent father, but the main thing that stuck with Roderick and Mark was how excluded they felt from their parents. I know I'm probably not wording this the best, but within the house there was a family of four people. However, it wasn't like a unit of four, so it was sort of Nicholas and Elizabeth and then Roderick and Mark, if that makes sense. The boys were spoiled rotten with all the gifts and possessions that money could buy, but what they lacked from their parents, what they so desperately wanted and needed, was affection. It seemed that all the love that Nicholas and Elizabeth had, they gave solely to each other. Elizabeth waited on her husband's hand and foot and was more concerned with being a perfect wife than a mother, which is bizarre to me, considering she had to virtually beg Nicholas to have these children, and now they're almost second best to her. A family friend would describe their dynamic, saying, quote, They treated their sons so coldly that if you treated your dog like that, you would be reported to the RSPCA. I don't think the boys ever had a kiss or cuddle from their parents all their lives. The brothers became more detached from their parents when aged six and seven, they were shipped off to a boarding school in England. In all fairness, Nicholas and Elizabeth did want the best for their sons. They really valued education, so they believed that in order for Roderick and Mark to get the best start in life and for them to thrive in adulthood was to ship them off to this really expensive boarding school. To Nicholas and Elizabeth, this was a normal thing that didn't really take much, if any, consideration. They had both went to boarding schools and by all accounts, they were living a great life, doing well for themselves, and so they wanted their sons to be able to live the same way off of their own backs. Roderick and Mark attended Lockers Park Prep School in Hemel Hempstead, which cost in the range of £30,000 per year to attend. And obviously, there's two of them, so Nicholas and Elizabeth were pulling out sixty grand a year on their son's education, more than the average yearly salary for a lot of people in the UK. Roderick and Mark hated boarding school. They absolutely despised it. They thought that their parents had just shipped them off to get rid of them. They felt left out, excluded, pushed aside and unloved by Nicholas and Elizabeth. Over time, this anger manifested in a deep-rooted resentment and hatred and naturally, the boys became very distant from their parents. At school, it was noted just how opposite the two brothers seemed. Roderick, who was the older brother, was a popular Jack the Lad. He liked to show off and be cheeky. He was considered very good looking and so he received lots of welcome attention from the girls. He was very much a ladies man. He could also be hot-headed and would snap or get angry at the most minute of things. In fact, he was actually excluded from school for a week one time after he had been involved in a fist fight on the roof of the building. Not much is ever really said about Mark, apart from how quiet he is. He wasn't loud and boisterous like his brother. He was shy. He was an introvert. One of his friends would later describe him, saying that he wouldn't say boo to a goose. Mark kept his friendship circle very small. I believe throughout his time at school, it was just Mark and then this one other friend who mainly stuck together. 
This friend who later spoke in a documentary commented on the strange relationship between Roderick and Mark, saying that Mark was actually scared of his older brother because of how irate and violent he could become and that the brothers had bumped heads in the past. While their sons were away at boarding school, Nicholas and Elizabeth would take full advantage of this newfound free time. During this period, they were very rarely in Jersey. They were so often either in their Spanish villa or out cruising on their yacht. In fact, they were away so often that them being away at Christmas was a normal, practically expected thing. They'd buy gifts and wrap them up months in advance and then hide them inside of the mansion. Then on Christmas morning, they would literally text one of the boys saying like, Merry Christmas, gifts in the drawer or gifts in the cupboard, wherever they were. How can you not make time to see your own kids on Christmas Day? If you want to be on your yacht or in Spain, then take them with you. Whenever Roderick and Mark were broken up from school for like a half term or Easter break, anything like that, they would be looked after by their auntie, Nancy Clark, who is Elizabeth's sister. Nancy was lovingly nicknamed Nan, so that's what I'm going to call her throughout this episode. Nan, who I believe still lived in Scotland, would travel down to Jersey and stay in Crow's Nest with Roderick and Mark, so at least if their parents weren't there, they could be in their own home. Nan would be the closest thing to a mother figure that the boys had and they deeply, deeply loved and appreciated her. On occasion, when Nan couldn't watch the boys, they would be watched by their uncle Stephen, who was Nicholas's twin, so they developed a nice bond with him too. After leaving school, both Roderick and Mark decided that they didn't want to go on to university, much to the disappointment of their parents. Throughout their academic life, both of the brothers had immense pressure put on them by Nicholas and Elizabeth to excel academically, but neither of them were like geniuses, they were just regular students, nothing outstanding or remarkable, just normal, which is fine. They hated boarding school and as someone who also didn't like school, I can relate in the not caring and not being bothered mentality. They didn't like it there so they weren't going to put effort in and stress out trying to reach unrealistically high expectations set by their parents. So when Roderick and Mark finished their education with just normal, good results, Nicholas and Elizabeth weren't satisfied. They were really ashamed and felt let down and now that the brothers decided to not go to university, this just made their parents feel very disappointed, which can't feel good for any children knowing that your parents are very openly disappointed in you when you already think that they don't like or even love you. That mustn't feel very nice at all. This just added more fuel to the fire of the resentment and the hatred that Roderick and Mark felt towards their parents. Mark would go on to do really well for himself. He began working in high finance at one of the banks in Jersey and he was really good at his job. Mark was intelligent and what he knew, he knew well and one of these things was making money and he began making a lot. 
Colleagues would describe Mark as a workaholic. He was always first in on a morning, last out on a night. He steadily climbed up the corporate ladder and was chuffed with the success that his very hard work was giving him. He was able to move out of Crow's Nest and move into his own flat in Jersey, all independently, no help from mum and dad who were now very proud of him. Mark would begin training to be a Euro bond dealer with an Arab bank, so this saw him working and living between Jersey, London and Paris and he was thriving. He loved doing this and he was raking in the money, now earning more than his parents. Outside of work life, Mark was still very introverted. He spent most of his time laying back, relaxing, enjoying takeaways and films in his flat and he really enjoyed going for drives in a sports car that he had treated himself to. He wasn't like solitary though, he would occasionally go out drinking with his friend from school and they would quote, get rowdy. Roderick went down a bit of a different route to his younger brother. He decided that he wanted to go into the army. He too worked his way up through the ranks and became a part of the Royal Green Jackets Regiment. Roderick felt like he needed discipline and somewhere where someone told him what to do and he just done it. That's how some people work, how some people thrive. But despite this, his behaviour didn't really change. He was still considered as arrogant and aggressive and he was pretty reckless too. While at his barracks he would abuse drugs which obviously is not allowed and if he was caught doing this he could have been put in front of the court martial and was at risk of being kicked out of the army but he was never caught, he was that sneaky. Roderick was also very careless with his money and he was really just scraping by living paycheck to paycheck. He thought that he could live his life to the standard that he did when he was living off of his parents' money, but he couldn't do that with his own money. One summer, when he was back at home in Jersey for some time off, he had gone to Elizabeth asking for some help with money. He wanted her to pay for his mess bill, and I tried to figure out what that was, and what I think it is, is it's like his bill from the army for them providing his accommodation and his meals. Honestly, I try my best to figure that out, but I am no good with army terminology. So I asked someone who's in the army now, and that's what he advised, so that's what I'm going with. So Roderick went to his mum, asking her to pay this bill for him, and much to his surprise, she refused. Elizabeth wanted to teach Roderick a lesson, for him to learn the value of money, that he had to learn how to budget, that he had to be better at money handling, and that she and Nicholas weren't going to keep giving him handouts, so probably for the first time ever, Roderick was told no. He tried pressing, but continuously Elizabeth was saying no and she was holding her ground. This is when Roderick raised his fist and punched his own mother. He was so angry that for once he wasn't getting what he wanted and he didn't like it. He felt entitled to his parents' money, so when Elizabeth kept on refusing, he burst in fury and just punched her. Punched his own mother. Sometime after this, I don't think it was immediately, Roderick did apologise and Elizabeth accepted it and it was sort of left at that. I don't know if Nicholas knew about the punch, I seem to think that he didn't because from what I read about him, I think if he knew that Roderick had hurt his mum, he would have disowned him like that. I don't think he would have allowed Roderick near Elizabeth again, that's just my assumption though. 
While both Roderick and Mark were working hard, making their own money, trying to establish themselves, Nicholas and Elizabeth were doing what they always had, holidaying, sailing, partying and having a good old time, more so now that they had taken an early retirement. Supposedly, Roderick and Mark were extremely envious of their parents because it seemed to them that their parents were really sailing through life, no pun intended, and everything was easy for them while they had to work their backsides off for it. Roderick and Mark weren't saying that when Nicholas and Elizabeth were their age, they had worked just as hard in order to get where they are now, reaping the benefits of their hard work. They weren't just doing everything they were doing off of their own inheritance, they had worked hard. I hope that makes sense, I feel like I just made that sound really complicated. Roderick and Mark were aware of their parents' excessive spending and that now they were doing even more, they were actually spending beyond their means a bit, thus eating away into their son's inheritance without a second thought. Personally, I don't see a problem with that. I mean, it is their money they worked for and they have always been people who live for the moment. So they're not sitting thinking about leaving money behind when they could spend it and have a good time. So in order to get some more money, Nicholas and Elizabeth decided they were going to sell their mansion, Crow's Nest. They weren't there a whole lot anyways between sailing on the yacht and the villa in Spain. Both of their sons had now permanently moved out. They didn't need a mansion and they would much rather the extra cash. So to them, selling up was a no-brainer. Roderick and Mark took the sale of their childhood home hard. They loved this house. This is where they grew up and where they had all of their childhood memories. Nicholas and Elizabeth downsized, purchasing a white bungalow at number nine, Clos de la Atlantique, St. Brelade, on the other side of Jersey, although it is only about 15 minutes in the car. Their new bungalow was very modest in comparison to the mansion they lived in before, and honestly, it was perfect for Nicholas and Elizabeth. Sometime in 1986, Mark travelled to Jersey to alert his parents about something that he had found. Again, he worked in banking and he was very switched on around a lot of aspects and one of these was the different stock and insurance markets. Nicholas and Elizabeth had invested a lot of money into Lloyds of London and Mark predicted that it was going to crash. So he came to Jersey to tell his parents that they needed to withdraw their money but they didn't listen, and just as Mark had predicted, it crashed. I don't know the full technicalities of this, but this crash resulted in Nicholas and Elizabeth having to make annual payments back to Lloyds of London, and how it worked out was that these payments were going to almost completely swallow Roderick and Mark's million pound inheritance. The debt would only be wiped after both Nicholas and Elizabeth had died. On the 9th of October 1987, Roderick and Mark both flew to Jersey and together they began planning an early birthday dinner for Elizabeth's upcoming 48th birthday, deciding on a restaurant inside of the Seacrest Hotel. Elizabeth was thrilled that her sons were doing this for her and that they would all be spending some time together as a family, which is something that very sparsely happened. She was gushing to all of her friends about how much she was looking forward to it. 
According to the documentary Count Down to Murder, the following morning, the 10th of October, Roderick rented a red van and drove to St. Helia, the capital of Jersey, and purchased what we would call, in hindsight, a murder kit. He walked into a hardware shop and spent £103.42 on two spades, two torches, two tarps, a pickaxe, heavy duty plastic bags, a saw, a rope and several cleaning products. See the day before, while Roderick and Mark were planning Elizabeth's dinner, Roderick was actually hardly even thinking about the dinner. In his head, he was going over a meticulous plan to murder his parents. He went over and over what he was going to do, refining this plan till it was perfected. Roderick had fully decided he had made up his mind that he was going to kill Nicholas and Elizabeth and on this morning that he's going to the hardware shop, he's carrying out the first steps of his plan, buying everything he needs to commit murder, hide bodies and clean a crime scene. Meanwhile, back at the bungalow, Elizabeth was cracking on doing some decluttering. They had moved from this big mansion to a much smaller bungalow, so she had a lot of stuff that she wanted gone and she needed to clear up a lot of space. I believe that she also asked Roderick and Mark to do the same with some of their old stuff, so inside this bungalow, there's a couple of boxes of junk kind of just littered about. This is relevant later. That evening, as Nicholas and Elizabeth were getting ready for dinner and their sons arriving to the bungalow, Nicholas realised that they had double booked themselves. Elizabeth and one of her close friends actually shared a birthday and they had previously planned to go out on this night, the night that Roderick and Mark had arranged for them all to go out. So Nicholas went to the phone and called up this friend with full intentions to cancel and rearrange, but when they got on the phone, either Nicholas or the friend suggested, instead of fully cancelling, why don't they pop over to the friend's house, have a drink or two before they go for the meal. That way, they can still see their friends and have their meal with their sons. Nicholas and Elizabeth, never want to turn down a drink or two, thought that this was a great idea. So they quickly finished getting sorted and they left the bungalow around 7pm, leaving a bottle of champagne out for when Roderick and Mark would arrive. That evening, Mark had offered to be the designated driver. He wouldn't have a drink so that he could drive everyone around and they could enjoy themselves. However, for some reason, his car wouldn't start, so he had to drive that red van that Roderick had rented, which had the murder kit in the back. It's unknown whether Mark knew about it, and if he did, whether he knew why Roderick had those items. The brothers arrived at the bungalow at about 8pm, and they were shocked, but not surprised, to find that it was empty. Of course their parents had gone out. Roderick and Mark could never fully have Nicholas and Elizabeth to themselves. Them being left behind while their parents were out having fun had always been the norm, so why did they think that this occasion would be any different? Nicholas and Elizabeth weren't out too much longer, and when they got back to the bungalow, they popped open the champagne. The Newells arrived at the Seacrest Hotel for their reservation at about 9.30pm and throughout their time here, they seemed just like any other family. They were genuinely all having a really good time together, they were happy and in high spirits, which wasn't something that happened often. 
A waiter would describe the family saying they looked like a very close family who were having a great time. Throughout the evening, they dined on lobster, drank through two bottles of costly champagne and three bottles of wine. Again, Mark wasn't drinking, so all of that alcohol is between Nicholas, Elizabeth and Roderick. So fair to say, they were pretty drunk. At the end of the night, Mark took care of the bill. It came to just over £144, which with inflation, that would be around £390 today. The Newells then left the Seacrest Hotel restaurant at midnight. Mark dropped his family off back at the bungalow and pretty much immediately left. I think we've all at least once been the only sober person surrounded by very drunk people and it's not really that fun so we can relate to Mark and him wanting to get his family home safely and then go home and go to bed. At the bungalow, Nicholas and Roderick continued the celebrations. Nicholas popped open his favourite scotch, pouring himself and his son a glass. Elizabeth was feeling a bit tired, so she just went straight to bed. Nicholas and Roderick began getting into very deep conversation. Nicholas wanted to know what was Roderick's life plans, what was his aspirations, where did he intend his career within the army to go? And it was in this moment that Roderick confessed to his dad. He didn't want to be in the army anymore. He wanted to drop out because he wasn't happy there. Upon hearing this, Nicholas blew up. He was absolutely fuming. He had paid thousands of pounds for Roderick to go to the best private schools and he blew that, not getting the grades his parents wanted. He didn't even try university, which is something that his parents expected, and now he just wants to drop out of the only career he has ever had. Nicholas is seething. In this moment, the son standing in front of him is a failure and a disappointment, and he made sure that Roderick knew that was exactly what he was thinking. He was really hurting Roderick's feelings, and he retaliated. They drunkenly argued, screaming at each other, and in his rage, Roderick, for the first time, accused Nicholas of neglecting him throughout his childhood, and for a split second, the arguing paused. Nicholas was a very proud man, and despite the fact that he didn't want to have children, he still firmly believed that he was the best possible father to his sons. He showered them in gifts and material objects they wanted for nothing. They never had to worry where their next meal was coming from. They were given an amazing opportunity to get really far ahead in life, and up until their adulthood, Nicholas had funded everything for them. So for him now to hear that Roderick is accusing him of neglect, he's astonished at how ungrateful Roderick was. How dare he accuse him of that? Roderick felt like he was neglected in the sense that he didn't receive really any love, affection or attention from his parents. So he was referring to emotional neglect more than anything else. Absolutely irate from this comment, Nicholas demanded Roderick to leave. Roderick refused and Nicholas physically pushed his son, causing him to fall to the floor, hitting his head on the way down. Roderick jumped back up to his feet and prepared to have a fist fight with his dad. During all of this, all the commotion of the arguing, Elizabeth was woken up. 
She sat and sort of listened for a short while before getting out of bed, probably going to try and defuse the argument and separate the men. So now, Roderick is on his feet and he's seeing red. His adrenaline is through the roof and so he picks up one of the closest things to him, which happened to be a pair of nunchucks from one of those random boxes on the floor. And with these nunchucks, he began uncontrollably striking his 56-year-old dad over and over, savagely whacking him in the head until he fell limp to the floor. It was right in this moment that Elizabeth entered the living room and what she is seeing is absolutely horrific. Her oldest son, 22-year-old Roderick, is towering over his dad, her beloved husband, and in a frenzy, he is beating him over and over and there is blood splattered everywhere. Roderick turns and see his mother and he bolts for her, chasing terrified Elizabeth into her bedroom, cornering her and once again lifting up the nunchucks and bludgeoning her to death. And just like that, Roderick Newell has murdered both of his parents. As I mentioned earlier, committing this murder had been the plan all along but it wasn't supposed to go like this. Roderick had carefully planned each step of the murder so that he could conceal it. He intended for it to look like Nicholas and Elizabeth had jumped on their yacht, gone sailing and disappeared. But now he's gone off plan and he's panicked and he doesn't know what to do. His dad's body is late in the living room, his mum's body is late in the bedroom and Roderick is just stood there covered in blood, feeling lost and in a daze. He sat down and rang the only person he thought could help him, his younger brother Mark. Mark was at home sleeping when the phone began to ring, it's probably going on about 2am now. Tired and slightly confused, Mark answers the phone and hears his brother telling him, quote, I've just killed mum and dad and if you don't come around right now, I'm going to kill myself too. In that moment, Mark was about to make one of the biggest decisions in his life. Was he going to hang up, call police and hand his brother in, risking his brother taking his own life? Or was he going to help his brother conceal the murder of their parents? In a split second, Mark chose the latter. He was going to help his brother. He tried to calm Roderick down over the phone and reassured him that he would be over as quick as he could. When Mark arrived at nine, Clos de la Atlantique, he found his brother sat with their father's shotgun. He was still on the verge of taking his own life. Mark calmed Roderick down and took the gun from him and together they got to work. The still warm bodies of Nicholas and Elizabeth were wrapped up incredibly tightly within the two tarps that had been purchased from the hardware shop. They then loaded the bodies into that red van. Roderick and Mark decided to bury their parents in some woodland nearby their childhood home, Crow's Nest. When they were younger, they would spend a lot of time out in this woodland plain, so they knew where the more secluded areas were, where had little foot traffic, and where would be the best to bury their parents so that they would never be found. 
The brothers dug up a large ditch and dumped the bodies of Nicholas and Elizabeth Newell inside, lay head to tour. They then filled in the hall and fled, knowing they were never going to see their parents again. At some point, the boys had tried to incinerate some evidence by setting a little bonfire with some of their parents' stuff in. This included blood-soaked clothes, Nicholas's glasses and his pipe, Elizabeth's handbag and a length of metal and chain, which I think was part of the nunchuck. When the boys arrived back at their parents' bungalow, they scrubbed it from top to bottom for hours, getting rid of every single drop of visible blood from the carpet and the walls and anything incriminating. Because one of the boys had scrubbed at the carpet so much, it was soaking wet, so they turned the heating all the way up in the bungalow with hopes that it would dry the carpet out. It would look suspicious if someone came to the bungalow and is this just one spot of carpet that's drenched. Roderick and Mark had been up all night, burying their parents, cleaning up the bungalow, and now they were exhausted. Any adrenaline that they had been running on was long gone by the time the sun had rose. That morning, a woman named Maureen knocked at the door. Maureen was a good friend of Elizabeth's and she had arrived to give us some flowers for Elizabeth's upcoming birthday. Roderick answered the door and greeted Maureen, who was taken aback by his appearance. He looked exhausted and run down, and she even said to him that he looked like death warmed up or looked like he had just seen a ghost. Roderick accepted the flowers and told Maureen that Elizabeth was still in bed, they'd got in late last night, so he would give the flowers to her when she awoke, and Maureen had no reason to question this, so off she went. That afternoon, both boys hastily left Jersey, Roderick going to his barracks and Mark to London. Four nights after the murder, between the evenings of October 15th and October 16th, the Great Storm of 1987 struck the UK, Channel Islands, France, Spain, Belgium and Norway. The Great Storm devastated parts of the UK, Channel Islands and France with violent hurricane-like winds going up to 135 miles per hour. Schools were closing, people's homes were being damaged, trees were falling down, electricity was cutting off and it was a terrifying time. The Great Storm tragically caused the death of at least 22 people and it was after this that the concern about Nicholas and Elizabeth's whereabouts heightened. Prior to the Great Storm, their friends had noticed that they hadn't heard from the couple. Elizabeth hadn't rang Maureen back to thank her for the flowers, they hadn't showed up to plans that they had made, and they seemed to have gone radio silent, which was odd because they were people who were always in contact with their friends. But by the time some people were realising this, that is when the Great Storm intercepted, and that's what all the attention slipped to for most people not for Maureen and her husband David. David went to the bungalow to check up on his good friends and hopefully get an answer as to why they were acting so strange. So he arrived at 9 Clos de l'Atlantique and found that there was five days worth of letters still unopened. I think the Newells had like is it a foyer where you walk into it, then there's another door to get into the house? I think he saw through that and that's where he saw the letters on the floor. 
he could also feel the heat radiating from inside. Again, either Roderick or Mark had turned the heat and right up to dry out the bungalow. Sources conflict on who contacted the police first regarding Nicholas and Elizabeth's disappearance. Some say that it was David, and some say that David contacted the brothers, who then came back to Jersey and reported their parents missing. Either way, both of them did come back to Jersey to assist with the missing persons investigation, but they were off. They didn't look like they were worried about their parents, and they had no sense of urgency. When police arrived at the bungalow, nothing seemed out of place. That's how well Roderick and Mark had cleared the scene. Investigators didn't even know that they were stood in the middle of a crime scene. The first detective wanted to speak to Mark and Roderick separate. For some reason, these first interviews were being done at the bungalow and not at a police station. So the detective sat with Mark to sit with him first in the living room, which was where Nicholas had been murdered. They hadn't even been sat down for a minute before Roderick was storming back into the room demanding to be there. He interrupted Mark's question like this twice and both times he was told to leave. It was very obvious to everyone there that Roderick was very tense and on edge and agitated, whereas Mark was more laid back and nonchalant. From both of their initial interviews, their stories matched up well. They went out for a meal with their parents, everyone went home and then went to bed. Over their next few interviews, there would be little slip-ups and inconsistencies here and there. There was actually quite a lot. There was around 60 points where their stories were different, but they were very small things. One of the differences in their stories that the detective spoke about was when they were asked about sleeping arrangements. Mark would say he slept on the couch and Roderick slept up in the bed, but for Roderick, it would be the other way around. That's just one example of about 60. It seemed they had perfected the thick of their story so it matched, not so much the finer details. Police continued investigating the missing persons case. Nicholas and Elizabeth's yacht seemed to have disappeared, yet their passports were both still inside the bungalow, so it wasn't possible for them to have gone to Spain, where they would have been at this moment in time had they not been murdered. Searches were conducted all around the island and up and down the coastline with the help of volunteers and dogs. Updates about the search was national news and there was daily updates. Everybody was talking about the Newells, wondering where they were and what happened to them. Their disappearance had a lot of the locals on edge too because what had happened to them? Were they in danger now? Could they be harmed now? Were they safe? Those were the thoughts that were going around Jersey at the time. Roderick and Mark would participate in the searches for their parents and Mark even made a public appeal where he seemed indifferent. Slowly but surely, the investigation into Nicholas and Elizabeth Newell's disappearance began to go cold. Detectives would say that they were so, so suspicious of the brothers, but you can't just arrest someone on a hunch or a gut feeling. Four weeks into the investigation, police finally got a break. During one of the searches, a small fire was discovered which appeared to have someone's personal items inside. These personal items appeared to belong to the Newells. The items were sent for analysis and they managed to extract fibres from something and these fibres were a match to the carpet inside of their bungalow. 
A forensic team arrived at 9 Clause de la Atlantique and they ripped up the carpets and this is where they found blood. A full forensic investigation was launched throughout the bungalow and from this they discovered a significant amount of minute blood splatter. It was so tiny that it was barely visible to the naked eye. It was found all up the fireplace, up the walls, on the ceiling. It was even found in the shower and on shampoo and conditioner bottles where maybe Roderick had cleaned himself up after committing the murder. Investigators had an idea of who they believed the blood belonged to, however they needed to prove it with certainty. So they approached Roderick and Mark and asked them if they would each provide a blood sample to compare to the blood they had found and they said no, they refused. Obviously this raised some eyebrows. Up until now the boys had been fairly cooperative, they had aided in the searches, they had answered questions and stuff, so why are they now retracting their help? Could they have been worried that their own blood was mixed up within their parents? The investigators then went to relatives of Nicholas and Elizabeth to ask for samples and both Nan and Stephen provided their blood which helped conclude that with certainty the blood that they found belonged to the missing couple. The blood found inside of the sitting room belonged to Nicholas and the blood found in the bedroom belonged to Elizabeth. This discovery shifted the investigation from a missing persons to a murder inquiry and they already had their two main suspects, Roderick and Mark Newell. When Roderick and Mark were interviewed after this discovery, neither of them displayed any sort of emotion. They didn't seem to be upset that the police believed their parents had potentially been brutally murdered based off the blood splatter evidence they found, which I think any other normal person would be hysterical. Despite best efforts from investigators and detectives, they could just not find any evidence to implicate Roderick and Mark who weren't given anything up and they had no idea where Nicholas and Elizabeth were. They were so desperate to solve this case that they even went to psychics for assistance. However, no matter how hard they tried, they just weren't getting any closer to finding out what had happened and ultimately, the case began to go cold. As it does, life continued on. Roderick and Mark continued with their life, police worked on other cases and sadly the people of Jersey started to forget about Nicholas and Elizabeth and their case. On the 3rd of January 1991, just over three years after their parents' murder, the brothers returned back to Jersey to legally declare both of their parents as deceased. By doing this, they were able to claim their inheritance, which was just shy of £1 million. With inflation, that would be around £2.7 million a day, so they were given a lot of money. Both of the boys used their new wealth in different ways. Mark didn't really change after receiving his inheritance, he instead was investing it and turn it around to make more money. It was said that the only thing different about Mark after getting his inheritance was that when he was flying between his homes in London and Paris, he would now fly first class. 
Roderick Thor completely changed his life. He finally left the army. He bought himself a nice yacht, which he would spend most of his time on, traveling, going all around the Southern Atlantic. He partied, he had fun, and he lived for the moment, essentially doing exactly what he hated his parents for doing. In 1992, he lived in southern Brazil for about six months with his girlfriend, Helena Pedor. They did eventually break up and Roderick made his way back to the UK, but I will be coming back to Helena. Roderick arrived back in the UK in July 1992. He was setting out to upgrade his yacht and while he was home, he decided to visit some of his friends and family. He had just been traveling and living in Brazil, so he hadn't seen them all for a long time. So he decided while he was back, he would do his rounds, starting off with visiting his beloved auntie, Nan. Nan and Roderick were sat eating together and he's telling her all about how amazing these past few months have been. And you know when you've been on holiday and you just wanna tell everyone about it, that's what Roderick's doing. At one point, Nan said something about Nicholas and Elizabeth, something along the lines of, she'll never understand what happened to them and how much the not known is breaking her. At the mention of this, Roderick's face dropped. Despite his demeanour, it does appear that Roderick did exhibit small hints of guilt and remorse, which I will get into later. So he's blabbering on about how good life has been and he's appearing joyful, but at the mention of his parents, he becomes sullen. Roderick hints to Nan that he may know what happened to his parents, but he refuses to elaborate. The next person Roderick was going to visit was his uncle Stephen, who again is Nicholas's twin. When Roderick left Nan, she rang the police and told them all about this interaction she had had with Roderick and that he wouldn't talk to her, but he was going to visit his uncle, who he may potentially speak to. Police contacted Stephen, who of course agreed to help. He wanted to help try and find out what happened to his brother and sister-in-law in any which way he could. Stephen and Roderick had arranged to meet at the Dunkeld House Hotel in Perthshire, Scotland. They were going to be in a room that had been completely rigged out with surveillance equipment. This was a full-on sting operation. Two doors down from the room where Stephen and Roderick were, there was a room filled with police officers and detectives listening to every single word. Little side note in here, but Stephen was an identical twin to Nicholas and just imagine being Roderick, you've murdered your dad, but then you're going to meet your uncle who literally looks exactly like him. Of course, Roderick would be able to tell the difference between his dad and his uncle Stephen, but just imagine that those initial first few seconds before your brain clicks. I can imagine that seeing someone who literally looks exactly like the man you have killed can have a really big effect on you. The conversation between them started very similarly to how it did with Nan. Roderick spoke to his uncle about his relief when he left the army, he boasted about his extravagant travels and his time spent in Brazil, and this went on for a good few hours, but that was fine. Police needed Roderick to feel relaxed and at ease and that he was comfortable to openly talk. Stephen begins to shift the conversation and begins asking Roderick questions about Nicholas and Elizabeth. Does he ever think about them? What does he think happened? 
He tells Roderick that he wishes they could have a funeral for them, but he can't do it without their bodies. And by now, Roderick is fighting back tears. He is weeping and he is extremely emotional. Stephen tells Roderick that he's spoken with Nan and it was really strange. She said that Roderick said he knew something and he asked him what was all that about. At the mention of this, Roderick sighs and he breaks. He begins relaying onto his uncle Stephen about the night of the murder, what happened, what he'd done and how he disposed of the bodies with the help of an accomplice. Roderick is really offloading onto Stephen, he's rambling, he's going into fine detail about every single part. Roderick has held this in for so long and now it's his first opportunity to get all of it out. A forensic psychologist later spoke about Roderick and explained that he likely found it very difficult living with what he had done and that he had likely felt very guilty about his actions and how his actions affected everyone around him, people who he genuinely cared about. This psychologist theorises that maybe in a way, Roderick now confessing, he may have believed that if he could give Nan or his uncle Stephen the answers that they desperately wanted, that he would be helping them or helping them with their grief because now they don't have those questions or the what, if, how, why hanging over their heads and this would be the first step of him earning their forgiveness. After Roderick finishes his complete confession, Stephen asks him, why? And Roderick replies, quote, you wouldn't understand because I don't understand. Officers in the other room cannot believe what they are hearing. The person they have suspected for almost five years is confessing and it's not just a like, I did it type of way. He's going into detail, he's mentioned the accomplice and officers immediately suspect that he is referring to his younger brother, Mark. However, officers did have a problem. This meeting, this confession, was all happening in Scotland, a different country, meaning that they didn't have the authority to arrest Roderick because they weren't Scottish police. So they had to discreetly follow Roderick out of Scotland and they planned to arrest him just as he passed over the English border. They rode in an unmarked car and follow Roderick after he left the Dunkeld House Hotel. They always kept a couple of cars behind him not to raise any suspicions, but Roderick's not an idiot. He would switch lanes and brake, he'd accelerate sporadically, and he noticed that this certain car was doing the exact same. Once he sussed out that he was being followed, he managed to elude the police, going off at a random roundabout right at the last minute and then speeding away. This man had just confessed to a horrific double murder and the police have lost him. Roderick had somehow managed to get to France under the radar from police who by now are doing everything they can to track him down. They were using helicopters, nimrods, they were tracing different hiring agencies like car hire and yacht hire to see if he had used any of their services, which he hadn't. Once in France, Roderick jumped onto his own yacht and made a run for it. And for a week, he skated by completely undetected. 
The beginning of the end of this international manhunt for Roderick Newell was when his yacht was spotted in Gibraltar. This was police's most recent lead and they had no idea where he could go if they didn't catch him now. He had his own boat, his own means to get around and plenty of money to go under the radar so there was absolutely a matter of urgency for police to catch him. They enlisted assistance from the Royal Navy who hunted Roderick down, finding him two days later. He was found 150 miles southwest of Gibraltar, quite near Morocco, so now he was in their sights. They couldn't go over to his boat and take him by force or arrest him over there, so they had to persuade him to get onto their vessel. The crew on board acted completely ignorant and oblivious to the fact that Roderick was a wanted man. They very convincingly pretended that they had absolutely no idea who he was and that this was just a random routine drugs control stop. Roderick rode over to their boat and on the 5th of August 1992, he is arrested for the murder of Nicholas and Elizabeth Newell. Mark was later arrested by French police in his Paris apartment as he was suspected to be Roderick's accomplice, although they didn't know the extent of his involvement. When he was arrested, his apartment was searched and that's when police found something. Propped up on his windowsill was the receipt from the Seacrest Hotel from the night of Nicholas and Elizabeth's murder. What an odd thing to hold on to, a receipt? unless it was used as a trophy, something to remember the murder by. Mark was extradited to Jersey, however he was released on bail and allowed to return back to Paris. Extradition of Roderick wasn't as easy. He was being held in Gibraltar and his solicitors thought that the confession tape should be inadmissible. They were saying that Roderick was basically being interviewed and they recognised that Stephen wasn't a part of the police, however he was acting as an extension of them by doing this and that he had led Roderick to talking about Nicholas and Elizabeth which shouldn't have been allowed. The solicitors thought that before this questioning, Roderick should have been cautioned and read his rights, which included his right to silence and that because he wasn't, this recording should be dismissed and the Gibraltar courts agreed. If officers wanted to extradite Roderick, they needed to present new or more evidence. Detectives conducted a search of Roderick's yacht and it was something that they found in here that led them to his ex-girlfriend, Helena Pedor. They flew out to Brazil to speak with her and she provided a lengthy statement where she said that Roderick had confessed to murdering his parents to her on at least two occasions. The first time he had been reading to her and a certain paragraph he read sort of triggered him and he started crying to Helena saying over and over, I'm a murderer, I'm a murderer, I'm a murderer. The second time the couple had been on a date night, they'd went to see the film Cape Fear and again this triggered him. Helena said that he should probably speak to a psychiatrist but he refused. He said he would much rather allow Helena to help him through it and also that it was good to live in fear. So with this sworn statement, the courts in Gibraltar allowed the extradition of Roderick. I know that probably sounded like it happened quite quick, but it really didn't. It took between 14 and 18 months for this extradition. 
During his time being held in Gibraltar, Roderick Newell had tried to end his life twice. On his flight to Jersey, Roderick was cooperating with police to an extent. I think by now he knew the jig was up, he knows he's been caught and he's probably feeling relief that he doesn't need to keep the secret all to himself now. He is presented with a map and a pen and is asked to show where his parents' bodies are. Roderick sits for a moment, rolls the pen between his fingers. His face is described as being dark and full of despair as he lowers the pen and makes a single dot on the map. This dot indicating to officers that his parents' bodies were in some woodland behind Crow's Nest. As soon as they landed in Jersey, Roderick was taken straight to that woodland he had marked on the map. He agreed that he was going to help find the bodies as best as he could. When they arrived, he actually asked if he could run the distance, essentially reenacting that night, as he thought it would help jog his memory. So, handcuffed to an officer, he and Roderick ran until Roderick stopped, indicating that they were in the approximate area where his parents were buried. A team dug and dug and dug around this location that Roderick had pointed out to them, and on day three of the digging, the lead investigator started to think that Roderick had led them on. Had he changed his mind about helping finding the bodies of Nicholas and Elizabeth, as that would further clarify his guilt? Had he wanted to get one over on police and prolong his inevitable trial and incarceration for even longer? On this third day, the lead investigator was sat at the command post when he noticed a change in the atmosphere. He walked over to where the digging was going on, he peered down into the hole, and that is when he saw a human foot. Nicholas and Elizabeth had finally been found. Nicholas was found still wearing the suit he had worn to the birthday dinner, including his dinner jacket, and Elizabeth was found in her nightie. Nicholas and Elizabeth's body were taken for post-mortem and formal identification. They were identified by their dental records. Nicholas was found to have sustained eight separate wounds. He had two in the front of his head and six at the back. He was also found to have phenobarbitone in his liver and stomach. Phenobarbitone is a very strong sedative, so this raises the question, had he been drugged, could Roderick have laced his scotch to make it harder for Nicholas to fight back? But, if that's true, how could Roderick's story of seeing red and just snapping be true? Doesn't drugging a victim show premeditation? But, could it be possible that Nicholas used phenobarbitone? The pathologist also determined that some of Nicholas's injuries weren't consistent with being beaten with only a nunchuck, that some of the wounds were consistent with a pickaxe being used. Remember, Roderick had bought a pickaxe which was in that red van that Mark was driving the family around in that night. So then this raises the question, when was the pickaxe taken out of the van? Was it when the brothers arrived at the bungalow before going to the mail? But if that's true and Mark didn't know about Roderick's plans, wouldn't he have questioned it? It couldn't have been after the meal because Mark drove straight home, so when was the pickaxe taken from the van? 
It also raises the question, does two weapons mean two perpetrators? Elizabeth had sustained seven wounds all across her head, which were more consistent with being from an instrument such as a rice flail as opposed to a nunchuck. At St. Helier Royal Court, 28-year-old Roderick Newell pled guilty to the murder of his father, Nicholas Newell, and his mother, Elizabeth Newell. At court, part of Roderick's confession was read out by the detective inspector on this case, and it read, quote, I admit I killed my parents on the 11th of October, 1987. My recollection is not completely clear after so much time. After Mark left, my parents and I continued talking and drinking in the sitting room. A heated argument developed in which many old wounds were reopened. It came to a head with my father and I standing face to face. I told him what I thought about him, things which I had never said before. He pushed me and I fell, hitting my head on the dining room table. I found myself beside a box of possessions I had sorted through and removed from the attic earlier that day. On top of this box was a pair of rice flails and martial arts weapons, which I grabbed and used to club my father. I remember him falling. The next memory was sitting on the floor in the hall. I got up, went to check the sitting room, and saw my father's body. I couldn't find any pulse. In a complete panic, I checked the kitchen and the bedroom where I found my mother's body. It triggered a memory of also attacking her. I could find no pulse again. I then realised I had killed both of my parents. On the 8th of August 1994, Roderick Newell was handed two life sentences. Mark Wood pleaded guilty to assist in the crime and conspiracy to conceal it. For this, he was handed eight years imprisonment. Mark was released on the 23rd of May 1996. He had served around 20-ish months. After his release, he did have a bit of a battle to be allowed their inheritance again, along with his parents' bungalow and their villa in Spain and their yacht. He was eventually granted all of these because he didn't actually commit the murder, so he wasn't profiting off of his crime, if that makes sense. It's believed that Mark was able to invest a lot of this and has managed to make upwards of three million pounds. Shockingly, Roderick was also released from prison. On the 24th of May 2007, he had only served 12 years. He was described as being a model prisoner. Some of his fellow inmates would describe him as being one of the most genuine people they had met. He was intelligent, articulate, gentle, and caring. During his time incarcerated, he actually participated in work experience at Chichester College, working his way up to being an IT lecturer. The principal of the college described Roderick's work as being exemplary and that he believes Roderick should be allowed to get on with his life. Since his release, it's believed that Mark has been taking care of Roderick and that the brothers have developed an extremely close bond. Both men will be approaching their 60s now, being older than their parents ever were. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, please make sure to leave me a nice review and to follow the podcast wherever you're listening. I would appreciate that so much. 
You can follow the podcast over on Instagram at True Crime Caitlin Pod, where I'll be posting images relating to all of the cases and for any updates. Make sure you tune in again next week for a brand new episode.